Well, are you ready to enjoy the word together? All right, if, that's, uh, if that would be your heart's desire with me, then I'll invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Kings in the Old Testament, 1 Kings chapter 17 in your Bible. And if you didn't bring a Bible today and you'd like one, we keep some in the back just uh, for that purpose. So just raise your hand. We'd be glad to share a copy of God's Word with you. And there's a little note page in your bulletin, uh, which you can use either for a fan or you can... You can use it to help kind of direct our time as we go along here together. It'll be helpful along the way. And church family, we we return again to 1 Kings 17, having made a commitment a couple of weeks ago to step into the amazing life and story of one of the Old Testament's most remarkable characters, a man by the name of Elijah. God inserts him into the unfolding drama of his people Israel at a time when the nation is plunging headlong away from God and into idol worship at the urging of its wicked king, whose name is Ahab, who is also then supported by his equally evil queen, Jezebel. And so the message of the day in Israel is, the, is that Baal is, God, is Israel's new God and that Yahweh Elohim, he's out, he's old news. But the Lord God, the true God, always has the final say. Right? Yes, indeed. And so he sends Elijah to confront Ahab and to confront Israel to begin the process of turning the heart of Israel back to himself once again. That's the, that's the large picture setting that we're stepping into. In fact, as we do so, let's lay claim to a promise that we were given the first morning we were together on this, uh, in this new, new direction. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. As we join up with Elijah's life, there's a promise that the Holy Spirit gives to us in the New Testament. It reads like this. For everything that was written in the past was written to do what? To teach us. To teach us today so that through endurance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And that's a great promise. As we share Elijah's life, his journey, his successes, and his struggles we're going to be better equipped not only to live for Jesus, but bring greater glory and honor to the Lord. And that is a promise that we have in Romans 15. So your Bible's open to uh, 1 Kings 17. Let me begin reading for us. You would follow along, please, beginning at verse 1. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, There shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him. Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Kareth, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Kareth, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. Behold, I have commanded the widow there to feed you. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel that I may drink. And as she was going to bring it, He called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. 
And now I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me. And afterward, make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she went and did as Elijah said. And she and he and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. And his illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And she said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to cause the death of my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. And he took him from her arms and carried him up into the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And he cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourned by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and cried to the Lord, O Lord, my God, let this child's life come into him again. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah and the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. We'll stop right there. Let's pray together, church. Well, Heavenly Father, as our Bibles are open in our laps, we are coming with the desire to be taught, not by Tim, but by you, by your spirit this morning. I would pray and ask you, Lord, be pleased to use me as simply the mouthpiece for what you would want to remind us about today. Sometimes we, we just need a little jogging of our memory to, to retrieve truths that you have already given to us before. But sometimes we need new truth. And so whether that's the case, whatever the case might be for us today, would you meet us here in First uh, Kings 17, Lord, bring glory to yourself, equip us for better service for your sake. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I remember dreading when people would ask me, how are you doing today? How are you holding up? How are the kids? Inside, I would be screaming, how do you think I'm doing? I lost my husband. My world is falling apart. Nothing makes sense. I hurt all the time. But I don't say that. The loss of my husband left a gaping hole. Photo albums will no longer be of a family of four. My daughter asks, who will walk me down the aisle? I wonder how I will be able to support myself, how to live alone. Who do I call about adjusting the automatic thermostat? Who will take care of the yard, the broken shower door, my computer, car repairs? Who will finish the product projects that my husband started? With whom will I reminisce about our special getaways when it was just the two of us who shared that? He won't be there to share our dreams for the future or sit with me in church or fall asleep on our couch. 
I won't have a reason to fix his favorite potato soup or pecan pie. I never thought till death do us part would come so young and in this way. Church family, those are the words uh, in a little piece called A Widow's Reflections by Carol Highstand. It is one not unlike this lady whose words I just shared, who comes into view for us today as we rejoin the story of Elijah. Woven for all time into the fabric of his story is the story of a, a most unlikely but really amazing woman known to us simply as the widow. Now, having jogged our memories a little bit, uh, having reread 1 Kings chapter 17, we recall that, that after announcing to the king that a drought of epic proportions is coming on Israel, God takes Elijah to two separate geographical locations, to a deserted, lonely desert ravine with a little spring kind of flowing down through it, a ravine called Kareth. And then when that dries up because of this drought, he takes him to a little town about 100 miles northwest from there called Zarephath. And we, we learned about this last time we were together. God brings his servant to, to these forbidding outposts for two main reasons, for Elijah's protection, but also for his preparation, for protection from an angry king and an angry nation because they know that he is the one who announced this drought. And God brings him to these places for preparation in the form of vital spiritual lessons that Elijah must learn before he'll be ready for the most intense confrontations that are coming in chapter 18 and following. At Kareth, at Zarephath, he learns more about what it really means to, to live in total dependence upon his God. He, he learns what it means to stand on God's promises and, and to rest in God's perfect timing and his methods of supply, which can be really weird sometimes. And he learns to trust God for what is absolutely impossible, humanly speaking. And so God really has Elijah in these two classrooms, preparing him for what he will need to do what God wants him to do, bring a spiritually dead Israel back to himself. But Elijah is not the only one in the classroom. The widow at Zarephath is as well. And it would truly be our loss, brothers and sisters, if we failed to see her today and learn from her. Many of us, I believe, will find some common ground with this very special lady and perhaps even call her a kindred spirit. Now, as we step into this story, if we listen carefully, if we pay particular attention to those spaces in between the lines of her story as it's written on the page, we might be able to hear her as she chokes back the tears and she says something like, will my life ever get better? Will mine and my son's situation ever improve? My life is rotten. It's cheerless. It's joyless. It's miserable. It's undone. And it's about to be done. It's about to be over. It's never going to get better. It's never going to be different. Can you hear her between the lines of her story? I think we can. If we listen carefully, 
But let me take it a step further. Have you ever had such thoughts? Have you ever spoken such words? Are they perhaps even your words right now? Truth be told. Rare is the one who lives their whole life and never asks, if not out loud, certainly then with a painful whisper, will this chapter of bitterness ever close for me? When will the clouds give way? When will the sun shine? Will it ever shine again for me? We're going to find a friend and a reason to be encouraged by the widow of Zarephath. We know so little about her, though, really, except that she, she, well, she is a widow. She's the mother of one son, and she's the sole provider. We never, ever get to know her name. Isn't that interesting? Someday in heaven, maybe, huh? But we don't know her name. We do know that she's poor. In fact, she's way past poor. She's destitute, actually. Most widows in her time were. As a matter of fact, when Elijah meets her for the first time, she's out doing what? She's gathering some sticks, isn't she? She's gathering some sticks. Common practice of the day was to to purchase fuel wood from a dealer who would sell it in bundles, but she's too poor for that. And so she's outside the city and she's picking up twigs and branches to make a fire. Verse 12 reveals just how desperate life has become for her and for her son. She's gathering up these sticks to make a a final fire over which she's going to cook the last little meal that she has before her and her son die of starvation. All her food and more importantly, all of her hope is gone. A handful of flour, an ounce ounce of, of olive oil are all that she has and she has determined it is time to die. Do you hear her? Can you hear her between the lines? Oh, won't it ever get better? Why can't my sad and desperate life ever know joy? Can you hear her? Can you hear her? And then as if to add to her suffering as she is out collecting the sticks... Her soul in utter anguish, crushed by the thought that her young son's life should should end so quickly before it's hardly even begun. As she's out gathering the sticks, a man who has clearly been eating well, provided for by the ravens, right? He's looking good. He's strong and he's fit. A man that she's never seen before says to her, woman, fetch me some water. Won't it ever get better? And as she turns to do what he asks, he adds, and bring me some bread to eat. And she looks up to the drought-parched sky and she rolls her eyes. Sir, this is the end for my little boy and me. There's, There's nothing left. We're about to eat our last meal and then pray that death comes swiftly. And we hear it again. It's never going to get better. To which Elijah follows upon by saying this in verse 13. Do not be afraid. 
go and do as you have said, but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me and afterward make something for yourself and for your son. (laughs) Without straining our imaginations at all, we can almost hear her saying to herself, if not out loud, oh, come on, really? Our last meal together as a mother and child, and he wants part of it, and he doesn't just want part of it, he wants the first part. Will it ever get better? You know, it happens this way sometimes, doesn't it? We think we've hit bottom, and it can't get worse, and and then the bottom drops out of the bottom, right? Heartache piled on heartache, disappointment followed by disappointment, circumstances, people, things, emotions. They line up like dominoes and the one hits the next one, which hits the next one, and they just keep going down one after the other. Won't it ever get better? What's the answer to that question? Yes? Let's say it with conviction. Yes? All right. And we say, thank you, Lord. The answer is yes. And this widow is going to show us the way. She's going to do that for us this morning. Now, up until now, we've, we've not discussed her spiritual life, but she has a spiritual life. She lives in Zarephath, and Zarephath is at the very center of the greatest concentration of idol worship that there was at that time to the false god Baal. Zarephath is in Sidon, and Sidon is the birthplace of Baal worship. And so she's lived her whole life surrounded by the pagan belief that there are many gods and that Baal is the biggest and most powerful of them all. He's the god of the harvest. He's the god of agriculture. He's the god of produce. He's the god who rules the sky and brings the rain and and makes things grow. And so he's the supplier of food. Baal. But in the face of this terrible drought that is so severe that it's about to kill her and her son, She apparently is concluding that Baal has either lost his power or he no longer cares about her or he's gone on vacation or or maybe he's died. So when Elijah asks for some bread and she detects by his speech or by his dress that he is Jewish, she swears by his God. Do you notice this? She swears by his God, Yahweh, the Lord God, in verse 12, saying, Sir, I've got nothing. My God has abandoned me. So by your God who lives, because my God apparently doesn't live, I swear on your God when I say to you, I have nothing but a tiny bit of flour and oil. That's it. It's Elijah's God. It's, it's not her God, but she does say that Yahweh, the Lord, lives. She may have heard that it was Israel's God that had brought this drought on in the first place. At the very least, she's acknowledging that, that he does exist, and apparently because the drought is so severe, he must have the power. That's all she has. But for Elijah, that is enough. Having been told by the Lord beforehand about the lady, this woman, he shares the promise that his God is going to make to her. Verse 14. For thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, the jar of flour shall not be spent, the jug of oil shall not be empty 
until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. Wow, what a promise. What a promise when you are preparing to eat your last meal and die. But with this promise, church family, and let's not miss this, with this promise comes a call to faith, a call for her to trust God. You say, well, how do we know that? Feed me what? First, Elijah said. Then you and your son can eat. And if you'll take that step of faith, share your little that you have with me first, believing God for more, you and your son will not go hungry again. The Lord has promised. What does that take? To feed him first. That takes faith. To put it another way, what sounds like a hard and unfeeling selfishness on the part of Elijah in verse 13, feed me first, is really a faith test, isn't it? It's a faith test for this lady. Dear widow, do you believe what God says to you right this moment? And if you do, then make a bread cake for me first. And what does she do? Verse 15. And she went and she did as Elijah said. What's wrapped up in that little line? Faith. Faith. It was an act of the simplest, most basic, unfiltered, unmeasured faith. Simple trust in the words of a God that she barely knows anything about. But you see, that's all it took. It didn't take a giant mountain of faith, did it? It took the tiniest little bit of faith. She went and did as Elijah said. I'm reminded of a verse out of Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Some of you have put this verse to memory. And without, what's the next word? Faith. It is impossible to do what? To please God. Boy, it doesn't get any more clear than that. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and she does, and that he rewards those who seek him. Uh, is, is simple faith a big deal to a big God? It really is, isn't it? It is in our faith that God takes his greatest pleasure. Jesus said this on another occasion. He says, if, if you have faith like a what? like a grain of mustard seed. That is the tiniest little seed. If you have faith like a mustard seed, the grain of a mustard seed, that, that size of that, you can say to a mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. Nothing. Matthew 17, 20. Jesus says, God does not look for a giant faith. What he looks for is a small faith in a giant God. Right? That's it. Verse 15. She went and did as Elijah said. Her faith lets go of what she's holding on to. She'd been holding on to that little bowl of flour and that jug of oil because it was her life, literally. And God says to her, let go of that in simple faith. Share it. And receive back life multiplied over and over and over, day after day after day. Church family, 
Here's one of the real jewels of the widow's story within Elijah's story. If you flip your little note page over, in faith, she had to let go of what she was holding on to in order to receive what God was eagerly waiting to give to her. And that is a principle that is as true today as it was the day that she experienced this. Would you agree? She had to give up in order to get back more than she could ever have imagined. Verse 15, she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for a couple of days. (laughs) For many days, the jar of flour wasn't spent, the jug of oil was not empty, according to the word of the Lord. When she put her faith in God's promise, she gets back more than she ever dreamed. She gets life for herself, for her son. And and we look at that and we say, what undeserved mercy and kindness that is from the Lord. That's faith's reward. Church family, is this not what salvation in Jesus is all about? I mean, think about that. What does Jesus ask of you and me? Sinners who because of our sin are destined to die and spend an eternity without God. What does Jesus ask of you and me, fellow sinner? Only that we in simple faith would let go of anything that we might be holding on to, believing that by doing so we can save ourselves. We let go. He asked us to put our full reliance, our full trust in what he has done for us and not in what we try to do for ourselves. We put our trust in his death on the cross to pay our sin debt that we can never pay. We put our trust in the fact that he's no longer dead. He has risen from the dead, conquering our sin, conquering death, conquering the grave. He has secured our salvation. Jesus says, in faith, let go of your good deeds. Let go of your self-improvement efforts. Let go of your sin-infected human performance strategy to try to save yourself. Let go of those things. Trust me, and I will give you life. How? Abundantly. And we say amen. When in simple faith we let go of what we are holding on to, we get what God is waiting to give. How cool is that? And what he wants to give us most is life. Life with him forever through the saving work of his son, Jesus. And beyond this, what does this widow's story reveal to us when we, like her, are in one of those desperate low places where we're saying, man, won't it ever get better? Will it ever get better? Perhaps that's you this morning. Perhaps those are your words right now, today. This is what you would be think, you, you would be thinking or saying. You, like her, are holding on to a, a little bit of flour and a little bit of oil, something that you've been holding on to, relying on, and trusting in. As you say, won't it ever get better? But that's the thing. Maybe it's a person. Maybe it's a certain circumstance, some plan you have in your head for how things should go but but it you're running out and the end is coming and you can see it coming though it might be incredibly scary and leave you feeling exposed and vulnerable and 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 feeling like you're out of control just as it might have 
have done for this widow on this particular day. Maybe it's time to turn to the Lord and simply say in faith, simple faith, I choose to let go of, Lord, that which I am holding on to right now. I choose to let it go and I will trust you and I will wait for you and I will receive from you whatever it is that you want to give me. I will put my puny, finite things aside and put my trust in you. Maybe that's what needs to happen today for you. The the widow's faith is rewarded. And as we read earlier, God takes great delight when we simply trust him. Simple faith pleases him. And he's pleased to respond, replacing the words, it won't ever get better with both promise and hope. Jeremiah 29.11, it showed up in that little video, didn't it? Do you remember these words? They were spoken first to national Israel in a dark time, but they're applicable to anyone who has put their faith in God alone. God says, for I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare, and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. What a great promise. And one to hide in our hearts, yes? Well, that's the first part of the widow's story, but but class isn't over yet for the widow, and it isn't over for Elijah either. As the drought intensifies and, and, and more of everything, the crops and the animal and even people are withering and dying, the widow and her son and Elijah in this moment are doing quite well. Thanks to the Lord, thanks to his promise of supply, life is much better now. Why the, the widow might even, if we asked her, she might even go so far as to say, you know, life is good. It's a drought. <laughs> it's bad. But life is good. And then, Suddenly, we read that without any warning, the widow plunges from the heights of hope found in God's supernatural provision. She plunges down to the darkest, darkest depths of despair and devastation. Her little boy gets sick and he dies in her arms. Verse 17, there was no breath left in him. Boy, are those heavy words. First it was her husband. She's walked that road. And now her only child. Man, anyone who would, who would say that, that being in the pathway of God's favor is an easy thing has not been in the pathway of God for very long, right? And she's proof of that. But God's not being cruel here. He's not being unloving. He's determining that both the widow and Elijah have more to learn about him. And this is going to be the way that he's going to drive the lesson home. Again, it's going to call for faith, a a trust in a God whose ways are perfect, but they are also mysterious and oftentimes not understood in the moment. And that is so true here. This poor woman in verse 18, she does what comes naturally to all of us, in in a moment of desperation like this, she asks, as a cry, she asks, why? Why? Verse 18, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and cause the death of my son. Boy, she's in a dark place now. With the loss of her son, she begins to wrongly blame anyone in sight. She lashes out at Elijah 
And then she turns the blame on herself. Do you notice that? Consumed by her sorrow, she reasons that she must have, she must have done something to anger God. And, and this is her punishment. And this is so common. This is where we go. She searches for an answer to why. With food and to eat and, and the assurance that she will survive this famine. Why this, God? Why my son? What did I do that the boy should have to die? Verse 19. It's one of the most tender moments in the whole story of Elijah. She's been holding her little boy's lifeless body close to her, rocking him in my imagination. She's holding him and rocking back and forth. Her eyes are swollen from crying, but there are no more tears to cry. And so she's moaning softly, not only asking, will it ever get better, but thinking, could it possibly get worse? Can you not feel the emotion of this moment? And Elijah comes to her and he says, Give me your son. Give him to me. And what must she do? With the smallest, tiny, mustard seed of faith, she must let him go. She must let go of what she's holding on to in order to get what God is waiting to give her. Right? The principle comes up again, doesn't it? And he took him from her arms and carried him up to the upper chamber where he lodged and laid him on his own bed. And then what happens next is done in secret. There is no one else present. However, the Holy Spirit has wanted you and I to know what happened. Elijah said, and and the boy are alone there in that room. Those many months of isolation at Brook Kareth where it was just God and Elijah Well, all of that now begins to bear some fruit. He is more aware of the power of his God than he's ever been aware of it before. It was his God who had called him to be a prophet and a voice to Israel. It was his God who had challenged him to go and confront a wicked king. It was his God who had brought on the drought. It was his God who took him to Kareth for his protection and then fed him with the ravens. It was his God who guided him to this widow and then filled her her jar with flour and her jug with oil without fail. Elijah has seen how his God has protected and how his God has provided. And so in faith, he moves toward God with a request and he ventures into a place that no one has ever gone before. Not from Adam to that day had anyone ever been raised from the dead. This is a first. Elijah realized that only God could bring the boy back to life. And so he calls out to the Lord to do the impossible. Verse 21. Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and cried to the Lord. O Lord, my God, let this child's life come back into him. We often see in Scripture God's chosen servants, whether it's an Old Testament prophet or a New Testament apostle or even Jesus himself, we often see the touch of the afflicted identifying with the afflicted and the power of God flowing through that one who touches into that afflicted person. And that's really what happens here. Elijah three times 
comes down over the boy and touches him. Verse 22. And the Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. And the life of the child came into him again and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper chamber into the house and delivered him to his mother. Can you imagine what that moment must have looked like? And Elijah said, See, your son lives. It's miraculous. It's incredible. It's wonderful. It's, it's a transforming moment. At the point of the widow's deepest sorrow and devastation, God gives her the single greatest revelation that she could ever hope to have, that in him is life. Verse 24. And the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God. But here's the real line. And that the word of the Lord in your mouth is what? It's the truth. Your God speaks truth. From devastation to exaltation. Elijah, you are, you are the true God's man. And he has the power to take what is dead and make it alive again. Boy, but don't miss this. This truth would never have been known to her had God not carefully and, and lovingly and perfectly taken her into the place of her greatest fear, her greatest anguish, the death of her son. She would never have known this truth if that had not happened. God knew what he was doing. Nor is this a truth that she would have known if she had not in faith let go of her son when Elijah asked for him, right? If she had said, no, I will not let you have him, she would not have known this glorious truth about the power of God. She had to let him go so that God could give her what he was waiting to give her, a new revelation about himself. And Elijah, after spending time with this amazing widow, is himself ready to take on King Ahab and the Baal-worshipping confusion of his own people, Israel. The great contest on Mount Carmel is waiting for us in, in 1 Kings 18. But that couldn't happen until these moments at Kareth and at Zarephath. If his God can use him to raise a dead boy to life, then surely his God can use him to bring new life and revival to a spiritually dead nation. That's the lesson for Elijah. And, and then church family, as we wrap this up and we head home, when we, when, we, when we think it won't get better, it can't get better, it can. The widow at Zarephath is proved. She had to let go of what she was trusting in, what she was holding on to, what she considered to be of greatest value, and let it go and give those things to God and let him work. And when, in simple faith, she did that, she got back more than she ever gave. Do you notice that? More flour, more oil, a son who is alive from the dead, and the knowledge that she could entrust her whole life to this God. For he was true. He could be trusted. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. 
plans to give you a future and a hope. Let's pray together. Wow. (laughs) What a gift you have given to us this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, Holy Spirit, from your word and from the story of of this, this widow today, so much there that we would miss if you did not bring that to life for us today. Thank you. Thank you for, for proving to us once again that you are the giver of life, that you are the one from, from which all life flows, as Wayne reminded us at the very outset, but you are most of all the giver of new life, spiritual life, a life eternal with you forever through faith in your son Jesus, and we have to let go in order to have it. What a glorious truth. For those in this room this morning who might be saying, walked in the doors this morning saying, it'll never get better for me. It'll never get better. Oh, may they walk out of these doors today, Lord, knowing that if they'll let go of what they're holding on to, you've got a lot waiting for them that will just blow the doors off of their life. We love you, Lord, but only because you loved us first. Let us sing a closing song to declare our trust in you. We say it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.